Hi, my name is Jens. And my name is Kylie. You're listening to World Class Podcast. I think aid can help where you know the conditions are right, and I think um, I think we, first of all I think we should be more modest with what it can do. I don't think we should stop giving it giving it because I really think that aid does a lot of good, you know. In, for example, I've seen you know I've seen in Nepal uh, the goats that we give each other for Christmas. You know, Dentures Aid has this give a goat thing. And I've seen them doing good, you know, in villages. So, you know, aid can, for example, aid can reach places where a normal growth process would not, because growth processes don't get inclusive by themselves. There will always be people who lose out of development pro processes. So even if a country develops, there will be very poor areas in a country, for example. So aid can help those that are lost in a development proce process, for instance. Aid. That's our theme of today, Kylie. Yes, it is. Uh, we are going to um, be talking about aid viewed from an academic angle. Mm -hmm. And we are interviewing Anna Medekar, which is the person you just listened to. Yeah. She is a political scientist at Aarhus University. She is also a former board member of Danida. And she's a current board member at Danchurch Aid, which is one of the biggest NGOs in Denmark. She had a lot of insight for us about how aid is working especially in africa and so definitely stay tuned in to hear that interview with her later but first you'll have to listen to us for a little bit longer today we have two texts yes written by academic scholars yes up there really up there <laughs> they're up there they're experts everyone the author that i'll be discussing his name is paul Coyer, and the text i'll be analyzing is from his book the bottom billion he's an expert on aid and development in Africa and he wrote this book in 2007 so I'll be discussing a bit about what his arguments there are for how aid is working and how it's not working. Mm -hmm. My academic text today is by a woman called Dambisa Mojo and it's called Dead Aid so I think already there we have explanatory yeah, you know <laughs> drama. Dambisa Mojo she is uh, academics can be dramatic People. She's very dramatic. <laughs> she, um, yeah, she's an international economist, and she worked at Goldman Sachs, and she taught at Harvard and at Oxford. So, like I said, she's up there. Mm -hmm. She's also uh, from Zambia, and she has some pretty strong opinions about what's wrong with the way we handle aid at the moment. But first, before we get started on that, we have our usual academic word of the day to be presented by myself. Wow! But and also. Before We have a new jingle. Exactly. I'm going to say we have a new jingle. And this time, Kylie, I am absolutely certain that we found the jingle. I really hope this passes the test. This will pass the test. Okay. Don't worry. Wow, very regal. I think you chose that because you're so excited that Prince Harry just got engaged. Well, you know me too well. <laughs> Jens loves No, actually, family. I think it's like, it's kind of academic, though. It sounds kind of fancy, but at the same time, yeah. funny and funky. So it's like yeah. bridging the gap. And so cool. So cool. Okay. Yeah. So okay. the word of the day. So the academic word of today, it's, um, it's a little bit 
more dramatic than usual because it's not just one word it's two it's more of a concept than a word but I think we really need to go over it before I especially talk about my academic scholar and so the word is Dutch disease okay and Dutch disease essentially is something that affects a lot of countries that are developing and what it is is essentially that a country will specialize in one sector for example logging or exporting timber raw timber and they'll focus so much on that export that a lot of their other industries will die and then they'll become completely dependent on that one export to stay competitive with the global market okay and why does this concept exist are there any examples of countries that have you know had the dutch disease oh my gosh yeah so many that i don't know of and maybe some that i do know of for example a lot of i think it's in mali that there was a massive dependency on the tobacco industry and when the tobacco industry all of a sudden internationally experienced a drop in prices Mali was also plunged into an economic downturn because of their complete dependency on that one resource. So, I mean, a lot of times when we talk about these economists speak, we hear things like diversification and, you know, trying to diversify economies. And this is sort of one of the reasons why, so that you don't become super dependent on one thing. And then if that goes wrong, you know, you kind of are screwed. Okay. Yeah. So why that's really relevant to aid is that a lot of countries, especially in the text that I'm going to talk about, have almost been trapped into certain types of industries or resources, resource development or resource export that has sort of left them economically stagnant and in need of economic or international aid. Thank you, Kylie, for that uh, word or concept of the day. I think we should move on now to our first academic text because yes. we have two of them and we also have an interview to get through before this is all over. Yes, okay. So my text, again, is by Paul Collier. It's an excerpt from his book, um, The Bottom Billion. And essentially, before I start talking about it, I just want to ask you, Jens, when you think about aid, what do you think about? What comes to mind? Ooh, doing something that is not scripted. Nice. Yeah. Um, so what I think of... Um, actually, just a note to the listener, there's nothing scripted. We do all this, you know, live. So <laughs> I don't know why I said that. But at least you didn't like, you didn't prepare me for this. I have no, to think I now. Now I might embarrass you. myself. Just you say know. world vision because that's what I think of. World vision. Yeah. But why I asked you that is that I just want to bring the attention to for our listeners and for us to the idea that aid is often a much bigger structure than we perceive it to be. And a lot of stuff happens behind closed doors and also at a much higher level than a lot of people really realize. Um, and that's sort of what Collier starts to talk about in his in his book when he frames aid in terms of the contemporary problems with it. So first of all, he talks about the fact that globalization has created a world in which obviously, yes, we have people that are living impoverishedly. And he calls these people the bottom billion. So he's sort of referring to them as sort of the poorest of the poor in the world. And he says, yes, they exist. And that in the large part they've been caused that's been caused by globalization because they missed out on the development opportunities they are often in a lot of countries that are super resource dependent and also in a lot of countries where brain drain has occurred what's brain drain it's basically when all of your skilled workers 
or the people that do get educated leave your country for better opportunities in developed countries. So, for example, when a lot of people from Asia go to Europe to study, but then they yeah. stay in Europe after studying to work because there's a high salary. Yeah, and there's maybe more jobs in that specific field. Um, and that is a really big problem in a lot of countries that need aid or are, are dependent on aid. Brain drain. It's Brain a cool, drain. cool word. Oh, it's pretty interesting. And another thing Collier talks about is the polarization of aid. So he really wants to stay away from that in his analysis of it. He doesn't like when people say aid doesn't work at all or we need to give them more money because he thinks that it's a much more nuanced industry and that there's certain cases where aid has worked really well, but also certain cases where it's failed. And he doesn't like the idea that it's either a good thing or a bad thing. He thinks it can be both. Okay, that's interesting because Mojo that I'm discussing later, yeah. she's really against it. Like she's okay. very, you can say she's very narrow-minded then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so be prepared. So I talked before about the bottom billion. Collier says that there are four traps that have caused countries to become de dependent on aid and have sort of kept them at this place of stagnation in terms of zero growth. And for each one of these traps, he said that aid can work differently and has to be combined with different types of instruments like maybe military intervention or renewals of trade policies or international law in some cases. Okay, so basically what he's saying is that there's not a simple solution to a complex basically, problem. Basically, he's saying that you can't just use aid ever. Yeah. It okay. always has to be combined with something else for it to become effective. Okay. So I'll just go through those those traps that he discusses and sort of outline how he thinks aid acts in each one of them. So the first trap that he says countries get caught in is a conflict trap. So essentially, when we think about a lot of countries that need aid, those are countries that have maybe intrastate warfare or are fighting with maybe the state next to them or, you know, are dealing with maybe their government is being repressive or maybe there's insurgency groups, whatever it is, there are certain countries that face maybe chronic forms of conflict. And he says that in these sort of cases, aid often misses the point because of bad governance. So for a country that's embroiled in a lot of conflict, maybe when you just give aid to them, it ends up in the wrong hands, you know, or it goes to even fuel the conflict or, you know, say buy guns or support the military that's oppressing so like part of their population. So what he's saying is that if there's not a, a good infrastructure in the government, then yeah. the money might just get taken by corrupt Yeah, and he argues that that's especially true in countries that are plagued with conflict. Okay. So he says in this case, for example, you can't just give aid. It needs to be coupled with military intervention from the outside as well. Okay. Meaning peacekeepers or military presence that will make sure that the conflict or that the aid goes into the right hands per se in the in the country and doesn't go on to fuel the conflict that's existing. And I mean, obviously, we have to keep in mind when he's discussing these things, these are from an academic standpoint. So they are a little bit theoretical. And obviously, they seem like they could be hard to implement. But he says that that's really the solution. And that countries that are giving aid can't be afraid of coupling it with military presence because he says that that's the only way it's going to be effective, which okay. is pretty bold, I guess. It's a pretty bold claim. Um, the next trap that he goes over is the resource trap. So this is when he talks about how countries that are in the bottom billion are sort of like what I described before, suffering from something like Dutch disease. And he says that in these countries especially, being dependent on resources leads to a lot of corruption because certain government officials or maybe certain companies 
take advantage of a lot of the population by, you know, allowing them to work for poor wa- poor wages and in poor conditions, which often leads to a lot of human rights abuses and just, yeah, again, sort of poor governance, but in this case, in terms of resources, not conflict. Okay. Um, and so here, instead of just having aid alone, aid needs to be supplemented with international laws. So you can't just give aid in this case. You have to give it maybe with a conditionality that you have to transform your industry standards or implement human rights standards for people working in your extractive industries. Or, you know, maybe we'll give you this aid, but you have to make sure that your mining procedures aren't bad for the environment. Again, so that certain, so that aid is helping the right people, but it's also not fueling a bad working environment for a lot of the people in the country. Okay, I just want to say to the listener, please uh, make a mental note about what Kylie just um, said, that aid needs to be given with a conditionality Hmm. in order to work. Because in a few minutes when I'm talking about Mojo, the exact opposite um, claim is going to be made. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. The third trap that Collier brings up is the landlock trap, which, to be honest with you, I don't fully see as maybe I just don't know enough about countries in the bottom billion. But to me, it seems a lot like the issue with conflict trap, because how he argues it is that people or countries that are landlocked are described as countries that have problematic neighbors. Should we just maybe explain what it means to be landlocked? Landlocked, yeah. It means just that you're not um, connected to the ocean. Yes, that's it. So you have in Africa, you can see some countries there in the middle of the continent, they are landlocked, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is a big disadvantage because Mm -hmm. they need to rely on other people's, you know, infrastructure. Yeah, like to get goods in and out sometimes or um, maybe even to go along with that, you could say that like a small geographic country that's landlocked is even at a greater disadvantage. But I think it really overlaps with the conflict trap because he argues a lot in this case that anything that's wrong with a neighboring country can easily overflow into the country that's landlocked. And so again, he says that aid to these countries needs to be coupled with international law or conditionalities to make sure that the governments around them, around the countries that are landlocked, aren't obviously getting access to this aid. Um, And he also says that in this case, military intervention might be needed, especially if a country is sort of being taken advantage by countries around it. And then the fourth trap, the last trap, is called the limbo trap. And this one is pretty interesting because it's almost set apart from the other three. The limbo trap means that for countries in the bottom billion who have broken out of the other three traps, so who aren't plagued with conflict, who aren't landlocked, who aren't dependent on natural resources, but who are still poor and need aid, these countries, he says, are stuck in limbo. So they've broken out of the other three traps but they haven't been able to access the international market in a way that's beneficial. So for these countries, he says that aid needs to actually come with trade, new trade policies and a little bit of international law, but he says that what has to happen is that aid needs to take on an entirely new character and he calls it the big push. So aid needs to be given in large quantities all at once so that these countries can build up industries improve their infrastructure and maybe even specialize in a certain area to be able to break into the economic zone. But the key thing he says here is that it can't be long-term. If you're going to give aid to a country in limbo to help them kind of get that foot in the door, 
into the international economy, you give a lot right away so they can kind of get in there. And then as soon as they've gotten in there, they leave. Okay. And I mean, that's uh, what he says is that you don't uh, want to create a dependency on the aid. Yes. That's why he says you have the aid has to be taken away yeah. after the big push happens because these countries need to learn how to essentially operate on their own two feet, okay. essentially. So those are the four traps. Those are the four things that Collier says can keep a country in need of aid. But then in terms of, at the end, in his conclusion, in his terms of his general changes in the aid industry that need to happen, what I really gathered from it was that he thinks that aid can't be based so much off of public opinion. He says that because aid is kind of viewed by the public as this thing that is can never go wrong, for example, or is more reactionary. So there's a conflict. People need food. Aid is brought in to give them food. If it's continually viewed in that kind of a way and if aid is not ever seen as something that can be proactive, it will never really improve because it will just continue to kind of feed the same problems or you know play the same patterns. And it maybe won't ever take risks or you know be entrepreneurial aid like okay this problem hasn't happened yet but maybe we can put some aid in now so that it doesn't happen two years from now and i think that i mean it's a big challenge for policymakers and for governments because how can you as a government really justify giving a billion dollars to another country so that in a preventative manner that just it doesn't go over well with like people in the home country right and i mean this just goes down to the nature of states in general are we really generous are we really inherently generous with our aid and is that why we want to give it to people or is it something that's merely reactionary and is it something that's merely done to kind of put a band-aid on a problem yeah i remember i remember reading an argument that a lot of aid is also for the giving countries uh locked because you can't really change um mm -hmm. uh, your that you give it because your domestic uh, population will react very negatively. Hmm. So, for example, in Denmark, if we would stop giving aid, then it would, you know, create a huge reaction because people would be like, oh, you're treating uh, you're treating Africa wrong or, like, you're treating Asia wrong or, like, you're, you're not... Um, you don't want to help anymore. You only mm -hmm. think about yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, I think that's why we need to keep in mind that it's just something we don't... We can't... It's really hard for us to grasp. And it's really hard for us to understand how it's kind of existing in between countries and in what forms and in what ways. Um, so yeah, he's basically arguing that in a globalizing world that's changing, aid has to change too. It has, to, it can't be static. It needs to be able to adapt to the world around it. Okay. Thank you. Makes sense. Kylie. It makes total sense. Great. I think we have a lot of views that are kind of opposite to each other. Nice. Uh, in the text that we are going to talk about now, which mm -hmm. is called... Just like how me and you are in real life. <laughs> You just couldn't let it go. <laughs> the text we're going to talk about now, Kylie, is called Dead Aid. Why aid is not working and how there is a better way for Africa. Hmm. It's uh, written by Dambisa Mojo. She is a Zambian international economist, um, like I said before mm -hmm. or earlier. In her text, uh, she starts out by kind of telling the history of aid in Africa. And I mean... I should just be upfront and say that she's very negative towards aid and she's very negative towards the history of aid and towards everything. She uses uh, like a couple of um, phrases that I like just because they are so polemic. <laughs> I'm gonna like I'm gonna just quote some of them. Um, so 
she says that eight is an orchestrated worldwide pity. Um, oh and she said that Live Aid concerts, I don't know if you remember the Live mm-hmm. Aid concerts, which Who was kind forget? of, that was like the first time that the whole world was coming together. All the musicians were saying, we wow. are the world, uh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we should help Africa. She says that this made a public discourse, you know, helping yes. Africa yeah. into a public disco. What? And uh, then she goes on to say that the history of aid, you know, with live aid concerts, once it started, started an era of morality. And she makes the argument that the West feels like they need to repay a historical debt towards Africa. Um, because of the West sort of. Yeah, because of the colonial history and okay. everything. And then a lot of, you know, moral campaigners emerged. So, for mm-hmm. example, pop stars and rock stars and mm-hmm. also the Pope, Paul II. Uh, he, I don't know what she has a beef with him. Like she's just mentioning him, and I don't know what he did. But <laughs> some of you might know. It, like all of these, they were not, you know, fighting to give more aid to Africa. That mm-hmm. was, you know, the the um, the goal: give yeah. Africa more aid. Yeah. Um, and it worked. Mm-hmm. Africa received a lot more aid. Um, a lot of countries in, were enrolled in aid programs where they were re- starting to receive more and more aid. But then after this, you know, brief history, she goes directly to the problem. She's saying one of the big problems about giving aid to Africa is that policymakers and politicians in Africa who actually know what works because they are the ones, you know, administering their states, trying to build these states that are new, you know, after the colonial period, these Mm -hmm. states are new. They know what work, which is state building, and they know what don't work. Mm. Um, They're never asked. I don't think, you know, your collier... Guy, I, I think he mentioned briefly that state building is important, but you know he didn't mention collaborating actively with uh, the leaders, with or the, the leaders of the countries, or, yeah. because what actually happens, you know, is that uh, we in the West decide how we want to help Africa. Hmm. So we have a concert that is gathering money for fighting a disease, but this money might be better off being spent at something else, which the leaders in Africa would know because they are the ones, you know, having the overview of the whole state. Yeah. But then we are like maybe fighting some some disease which is of course important but at the same time all this money is wasted because it could go to something else right that's a big problem she says that's why aid is not working and why it's actually ruining africa i'm quoting her right now so it's really one-sided is it's it what very, she's arguing yes it is okay. what she says is that it's actually you know sustaining a clientele uh, relationship yeah. and that means that there are some regimes in africa that receive aid in, and then they um, alter their policies in a way that the West likes. I mean, Uh, it's a critical argument, but she says that, so for example, when your scholar Collier, he says that there should be given a conditionality along with aid. Yes. She says, this is exactly what's wrong with aid and why it's not working. Mm -hmm. Because when the West decides what the aid should be used for, also in terms of policies, when they say, we have this concept of human rights, or we have this concept of liberal market. And if you want this aid, you should adjust your market. What's actually happening is that you're taking the agency out of the the state mm. where you give the aid to. Right. So, talking about all the problems, a last point that she makes, which I think is a really strong point, because you can't really argue with factual numbers, mm. is that over the last 30 years, the most aid-dependent countries have had a growth rate of minus 0.2% per year. You know, talking of economic growth, what you would actually like is to be between seven or like above seven percent. I think mm. is that can it, can you say that? 
that's oh, you know you yeah. have you have China who has been having 14% growth per year. Okay. So if you want to develop, you need to have a high growth rate and yeah. definitely not a minus growth rate. Not a minus. Yeah. So you know if aid should work, Mojo argues, why are the countries that receive most aid the ones who have a minus growth rate? Mm. Yeah. Then um, Mojo makes another historical argument. Um, which I quite liked also because this idea that aid works in Europe at least, but also in the US, I think, is deeply rooted in a notion that it has worked before because after the Second World War, what the US did was that they made the Marshall Plan. I don't know if you know what that yeah, is. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it was mm. a plan to rebuild Europe basically. After World War II. After when World it was War II. Completely destroyed. Yeah. yeah. So they put a lot of money. In today's terms, it would be $100 billion. They put mm-hmm. that uh, into rebuilding political and social institutions in Europe in order to secure peace in this fragile time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it worked. You know, we are here today. We are doing really great. And all thanks to the Marshall Plan, mm-hmm. some would argue. Yeah. So why would this not work in Africa? Mm-hmm. Um, Mojo argues that these two situations are fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. First of all, and this is a really central point, maybe the central point of our text, Europe uh, was never dependent on aid. Before... Before the Marshall Plan, yeah, they were never yes. dependent. But also during the Marshall Plan. Oh, during it as well. Yes. Okay. The Marshall Plan didn't make Europe dependent on aid because growth was already happening in Europe, oh. so it was just boosted. Hmm. And then also, this is really critical, only 3%, maximum of 3% of the GDP of Europe was uh, due to Marshall Plan aid. But in Africa at the moment, it's actually 15% of the GDP that is, oh. due to, like, that is aid. So you can okay. see Africa receives more aid and they are more dependent on it. Mm. Also, the Marshall Plan had a goal. It was only five years of aid. And states that knew after five years, we're going to turn off the the tap. There's going to be no more hot water running your way. Mm -hmm. They agreed upon that also. So, you know, the institutions, they were working hard to utilize this aid in a good way. So it sort of sounds to me like it was was the same thing that Collier is saying with the big push kind of injecting money that's exactly what they did yeah exactly exactly that's what what it was it was basically basically a big push yeah and then also a third point she makes is that in europe the institutions had you know hundreds of years of tradition in in building themselves up yeah and then they were destroyed so it was actually just a matter of rebuilding Mm -hmm. something you know literally rebuilding not starting something up so there's there's big differences um so you can't really use historical arguments to uh, to say that aid works she kind of like makes that very clear. There's no historical argument that it works. So we have to look at the concrete situation. What are we in now? Then um, she uh, talks about something called the IDA graduates, which is the International Development Association graduates, mm. which is countries that have relied on it, but no longer do so. Uh, because that would be another historical argument, you know, to look at the countries who relied on it. Uh, why, how did they make it? And these countries include China and Chile and Colombia, uh, Thailand, South Korea, Turkey. Do you notice any link between these countries? Um, wait, see them? China, South Korea, Turkey. Colombia. Colombia. Uh, Thailand. No, am I? Oh. None of them Maybe are from the African continent. Oh, right. There you go. That's the point. <laughs> Obviously. A- like, aid doesn't work in Africa. There is something wrong with Africa. Why does aid not work in Africa? Why are mm-hmm. countries that used to rely on aid and made it out of it not from Africa? None of them are from Africa. Hmm. Um, this is because they di- received less aid and over a short amount of time, and they were never dependent. That's her point again. Mm, okay. So what does she say then, instead of aid, is yeah. supposed to work? Or does she have a solution? 
Yeah, well, she says that aid works if there is a good policy environment. And I think this is uh, where she agrees with uh, Kolya. Yeah. But she's much more radical about it because, like I just um, uh, said, she thinks that it's just a waste of money if you put it into a place with a bad policy okay. environment. So that's sort of number one. Yeah, like she also thinks that aid will go to corrupt politicians or it will go to projects that are not what they were meant for or they will go to projects but then they will neglect what is really needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need good policy environment and you need the local governments, you know, which are... Their say in the matter. Yeah, their say in the matter because they have the, they have the, the knowledge of where they just needed the most and they need to be trustworthy, and that's you know hard to um, hard to achieve mm-hmm. a good policy environment in Africa. There's a lot of corruption. Well, and but a lot of just like conflict. That's yeah. Just but as long as you don't have that, aid is not working. That's as basic as, as it is. Yeah. So actually, she says that a World Bank report from 2000 concluded that aid only works in uh, countries where there are clear political and economic structures. But still. Mm. Uh, we continue to give aid, even if the World Bank, which is a, like an international institution, they have concluded that it doesn't work. Why is this so? I mean, she says that it's basically because we don't know what to do else. We can't right. just stop giving money to Africa. Where would that leave us? Yeah. Um, mm. Politicians are kind of, you know, locked in this situation. That they don't know what to do. And as I mentioned earlier, there's also a lot of domestic pressure on giving aid. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's this collective guilt that she's also talking about. Mm. But I guess maybe also, this is also in terms of maybe economic aid or development aid, but what we're going to hear coming up next soon um, from our interview with Meta is that aid actually works a lot of times in maybe smaller doses or in different ways like humanitarian aid or, yeah, food aid. Like there are ways that it does work in maybe not a worldwide scale, but at least to help a small number of people. Yeah, but then you have to really adjust your expectations because right. when we talk about aid now, we talk about lifting a- Africa, you know. Completely out of Yeah, poverty. helping it with the economic uh, development and giving it a bigger GDP growth rate per annum and mm-hmm. all of this, you know, she's saying this is not what aid will ever be able to achieve, basically. Yeah. So we have she to look at it differently for what it yeah. can actually do. She does address one thing. I think I would just lo- like to mention that because I promised to do so. Um, this idea that you can just pump in money one time and then leave. Leave. Yeah. She says that by doing so, you risk doing a micro-macro paradox. That's what she calls it. Okay. By helping short-term, you might kind of kill local industries, actually, mm. by pumping so much money into the country that local industries and, you know, local startups and stuff like this, that it will all, you know, for a short period of time, it will all be unnecessary because there will be mm. growth and, you know, the state will sponsor things yeah. happening and maybe you will even, you know, import goods yeah. and d- distribute them. But then after a while, these things, they will go away. And then the local industries, they will not have had time to develop because they were just a short time ago, they were not, uh, they they were were unnecessary. And now when they are really needed, they they didn't have the time to build up. So again, she's saying that, you know, that's not even a solution. Hmm. Um, So what she suggests, this is radical, but this is Mojo's argument, a Harvard economic scholar's argument. She's saying that what we should do is to cut aid completely in five years. Mm. And this text is from 2010, so obviously it didn't happen. But we can start today. <laughs> yeah, we can. I'm sure she would say the same. <laughs> so, cut aid completely. You should take your phone, call Africa, and tell them in five years it's over. Mm-hmm. That's actually what she writes. Of course, we should still provide aid for emergencies like natural disasters, and power like what do you call it, uh, famine. Yeah. But no more development aid otherwise. Mm. 
okay. cut it. The only reason why we don't cut it right now is because the countries, they need a little bit of time to adapt. adapt. And the reason why uh, we should cut it completely is because in order to achieve good policy environments, you need to give politicians incentive to do so. And right now, a lot of uh, countries in Africa are relying on aid, which means um, uh, makes them kind of unwilling mm, yeah. to Change. to look for other mm-hmm. sustainable uh, ways of getting money. Right. And she actually mentions, um, you know, sustainable ways of getting money. So she mentions foreign direct investment, which mm-hmm. is, you know, convincing other countries or uh, companies to invest in your mm-hmm. in your country, uh, or in, like boosting the capital markets, mm-hmm. um, or remittances which is taxing people living in other countries yeah um or like your citizens living in other countries yep. or um, microfinance which is a new uh, thing a relatively new thing mm-hmm. but giving like small loans to um people entrepreneurs especially. yeah to entrepreneurs yep. but also savings you know utilizing your savings to boost your economy that's all mm-hmm. policies economic policies i don't know a lot about e- economy but that's what mojo that's says what she's arguing okay. yeah that o- these are all policies you can use instead of aid to mm. boost your economy and cool. they will all be more be more sustainable Great. So, last off, the last thing is who should do this? Who should make the decision to cut aid? Mm-hmm. It will benefit Africa, no doubt, but African governments, African states, they will not ask for money to to go somewhere else. They will not say, I don't want this. Yeah. They will never do that. Mm-hmm. So, it is the West that has the responsibility. Western policymakers have to make the hard decision to abandon aid. Mm. Wow. But at the same time, they should open trade barriers to make it more easy for Africa to trade with, for example, Europe. And they should make their domestic populations know that this is not because they don't want to help Africa. This is because they actually want to help Africa. Right. Okay. I understand that. Cool. I think that's it. It's an unpopular political decision, (laughs) she says, because of collective guilt, neglect, stupidity, and a misunderstanding, a misunderstood want to help. Yeah. But it's what needs to be done. It's what she thinks needs to be done. Yes. Well, she would know. I assume Maybe. so. Maybe. <laughs> we don't know. Well, I think... Um, so we've talked a lot about how it doesn't work. Um, we've talked a bit about how it can work with other instruments involved. And now we're going to hear from someone who has actually researched aid and development in Africa especially, and who also has worked with aid industries and seen results on the ground. So... I'm sure it'll be a great addition to our debate. And yeah, we hope you enjoy it. Here she is. My name is Medica, and I'm an associate professor of political science here in Aarhus University. I'm also a previous board member of Danita and a board member of Dan Church Aid. My research interests are mainly public administration and politics in developing countries and Africa in particular, Eastern Africa. Regardless of whether it's oil or natural resources or aid money, you know, the, so the argument goes, the rulers will tend to become accountable towards the aid donor, or at least not to the citizens. So that is one kind of, if you disaggregate the whole concept of or the arguments, this is one argument, you know, that aid will then promote, it will not create an incentive for the rulers to become accountable towards their own populations. And hence, it will not really promote democracy, you could say. Um, so is that really the case then? Well, a lot of, uh, of uh, economic and quantitative studies out there show that in fact it isn't. Uh, that, you know, because aid donors, for example, they also, they also support taxation reforms. So they try to support 
the recipient governments in being better at taxing their own citizens. So, for example, it's not possible to say that aid will then lead to uh, the recipient countries taxing less. In fact, it's the opposite way around. So in that sense, you could say, well, at least that argument about aid doesn't hold. The other kind of the twin sister or brother of that argument is, of course, the natural resource uh, curse. And there is, there is, you know, support to that thesis that uh, if you depend on oil revenue, for instance, there's a tendency that the states are less democratic, but you cannot show the same with aid. And that's, of course, because, you know, aid comes with a whole lot of other support as well. So you can't really make that generalization. Then there is, of course, the debate on aid and growth, that aid would lead to less growth in the countries, uh, uh, in, in the poor countries. Well, there's also a lot of statistics out there on that. And actually, you know, if you have like, a, if you have like a regression analysis, you know, you can, and you have out of one axis, you will have all, you know, um, the proportion of aid in a country or how aid dependent the country is, you know. So the more you go here, the, the more aid dependent. And then on the, on the y-axis, then you will have growth, you know, then you'll, you'll find that there is a kind of a correlation. So, so the more, the more aid dependent, the less growth, but of course, that doesn't tell you anything about causal relations. So th that there is a correlation is not the same thing as there is a causal relation. So in, in fact, you know, the causal relation would often be the other way around. So the poorer a country, the more aid, because that's how aid donors normally choose the recipient countries is because of that, that there's like a poverty criteria, you know, they want to support the poorest countries. So in fact, you cannot really show there's really no evidence, empirical evidence, to say that aid creates less growth. I don't think there is much empirical evidence to say that aid creates more growth either. But that then may not be the purpose with aid. You know, the purpose with aid can be that you want to support um, a healthier population or you want to support immunization programs or you want to help uh, rebuild uh, a post-conflict state. Um, you know, all things that don't immediately create growth. You see what I mean? So I think, you know, you cannot really say that aid is bad in that very general sense. Then then I think you should, you know, then you could look at projects, you know, and then you can find bad projects that really haven't worked. And you can also find good projects. In my experience, and I've been on Danita's board and I've also, I'm now on the board of Dan Church Aid, I've seen a lot of good projects out there. I haven't all, I have also seen, you know, maybe projects that weren't quite as good. Um, but I think that's a risk with, a, you know, with the aid that you give. That some, sometimes it's, maybe it's not so succe successful and other times not. And that's the kind of debate we should have, I think. Could you be um, more specific about where the flaws are? Where could aid be improved as a, as a tool? Where does it work? Where does it not work? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are lots of flaws uh, and I don't know where to start. Um, the intentions are often or mo are, are mostly good, you know, but then often there's a woman, a I think she's a researcher. She's called Nancy Birdsall. She's 
written a piece that's called The Seven Deadly Sins of Donors. I'm not sure I remember all seven of, of them, but you know, one of them is, for example, that donors often have, um, aid donors often have short time horizons. So they are not patient enough to follow through you know, programs. And so then when they leave, the, maybe the positive results will then stop. So that's uh, at least one, uh, you could call it a flaw. It's not always like that, but it's like that with some donors. I also think there's a certain, and I think that's another one of her so-called deadly sins, is that there's a certain pride. So even if you can see that a project is going badly, the donor will then, or a certain stickiness, or you could say, then continue to support it, you know, even if the money should have been withdrawn. So I think that donors should become probably a little bit more flexible with where they give aid. I also think I've often seen, you know, because I think that's partly because there have been a lot of cut downs on staff, you know, development staff on, for example, embassies in, in, in poor countries. So if, if staff is cut down, then there are fewer people to follow up and to monitor programs. And sometimes I've seen, you know, big donors just wanting to dash out a lot of money, but without really following up. So sometimes I think what's needed is actually less money, but maybe more kind of patient follow, you know, to follow programs more patiently in a longer time during a longer time period. Um, that would be, you know, some of the flaws. I'm not so sure about corruption. You know, there's a lot of talk about corruption. But in fact, I think many donors have quite strict anti-corruption policies. I'm, I don't know how big of a problem that is. Of course, you get cases all the time. Uh, but there's also a lot of attention to it. Um, so even if corruption it's a problem. I also think it's a problem that's being taken care of, at least when it's discovered. Do you have an opinion about aid as a, a kind of symbolic policy from donor countries, when aid comes from a, like a, a governmental body in mm -hmm. another country? I think it happens. America is known for wanting to be more visible. Like this is aid from the American people, whereas other donors and many of the European donors are not as visible. I mean, for example, Danita would try to pool their funding with other, together with other donors so that their name is not necessarily uh, mentioned. For example, in Uganda, there's a, something called the Democratic Governance Facility. So rather that Danita has its own anti-corruption programs or gender-based rights programs or access to justice programs or something like that, they will uh, find like-minded donors and then they will all put their funds into this facility called the democratic governance facility so their names kind of disappear you see what i mean you can't really see danita or diffid or, or holland on the sign there it just says dgf so in that sense i don't i'm not sure how pronounced it is uh, of course you could say that for a small country like denmark and it might go for other small countries it's nice to have a good reputation on the aid front. So it gives us more credit than our size would kind of predict, you know, because we have like a really good record on aid. But we have the good record for a reason. I, I'm not sure that the symbolism was something that was thought of. It's just that we've had, you know, a high proportion of the GDP for a long time on aid and we've been good at coordinating with other donors and aligning with the receiving countries' policies and everything. All that they say is good for aid. 
we've done it. And that's, of course, good. You, you, I don't think, I'm not sure you could call that symbolism. Uh, maybe I'm naive, but I, I don't come across it that much with bilateral donors, actually. As you mentioned earlier, most of your research and work has concerned politics and public policy in Africa. Mm-hmm. So could you give us maybe a brief general history of what you know of aid in Africa specifically and sort of some of that its characteristics? Well, I guess Africa has been the continent that has lagged behind the most growth-wise and development-wise. And then, of course, it's also the continent people refer to when they say aid doesn't work. Um, If you look at the history, you could say that, you know, aid for Africa and for other newly independent countries after the Second World War and when when the colonies got independence, the World Bank and the IMF naturally started transferring capital to these countries rather than Europe and Japan, which was actually where it all started, because these were areas that really needed capital. And I think that's the whole aid industry started there. Uh, And then gradually, you you know, it was a debate on, well, why didn't they grow faster and what was needed and what kinds of investments and why didn't aid trickle down to the poor? And then in the 1980s, you had, you know, structural adjustment programs, privatization uh, and and the whole kind of liberalization and yeah adjustment regime and then throughout the 90s you had good governance programs and institutional support so i mean it has changed a lot in africa over the decades uh, for good and for worse during the cold war of course you had this you had to take care that i mean you could not really there weren't that many conditions for aid because, for example, the Western Bloc was afraid of alienating the recipient country. So the third world was kind of, you know, it was good to have allies in the third world against communism. And I guess for the Soviet Union, it was the other way around. So you could support dictators more easily. And then after the the breakdown of the the end of the Cold War, so in the 90s and into the new millennium, you would have aid, you saw aid becoming more conditioned on institutional reform and good governance and democracy and so on. And now, I guess because of the after 9-11 and the fight against terrorism, you might see again more of these Cold War dynamics. So, for example, if you have allies in the fight against terrorism, you might see you know that donors then turn their blind eye into blind eye towards uh, lack of democracy. In regards to what you said earlier about um, Africa being where people point to when they talk about the failure of aid, mm-hmm. why do you think that is? Is it because of maybe the higher percentage of failed states in Africa, mm-hmm. or lots of reasons? Well, failed state, yeah, that's one thing that you have. You know, some countries that have had you know sustained conflict for a long time. Uh, but also that uh, you have countries that have just seen a very very slow economic development, very slow growth, very slow what you could call structural transformation of the economy. Um, and, and so it's easy to say, well, that's a failure of aid. Well, partly you could say, yes, that's probably the case, but only partly. And that's why, I mean, I think structural transformation of a country's economy has to come from the actors 
in that economy, you know, and, and for, you know, for Africa, that would be because the majority of the population is, is still living in the rural areas. So it would be coming from, you know, a transformation of agriculture, basically, you know, so getting productivity up, getting higher yields, you know, because you have these, you have the populations are increasing very, very fast, you know, you have a very, very high population growth. Um, so in many countries, it's like seven kids per woman or 3% a year, which is a lot. So in order to feed the population, you really also have to have higher yields. And and, uh, and also, I think just because you need uh, to create a lot of jobs for all the young people, you know, you have populations where half of them are under 18. So, you know, job creation and, and growth in agriculture. And that's what you haven't seen a lot of for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I think a lot of it comes from the the borders and the fact that people have to coexist uh, very different ethnic, regional, um, religious types of units have to coexist in states. So state building is really difficult. And then, of course, the climate is also a challenge. Political stability becomes really difficult. And so, of course, if political stability is the primary concern, it becomes difficult to create growth. It becomes kind of a secondary concern. So I don't think aid is the reason for why there has been slow structural transformation in Africa. There's simply a lot of other, a lot more important reasons. And I think aid cannot, I mean, it's too ambitious to think that aid can create growth. Aid can help in a country where things are going the right way, or aid can maybe alleviate some of the pain from conflict. Aid can help build a really good, uh, aid can help reduce child mortality in some if we can, you know, re help reduce the diseases that you can, for example, prevent with immunization programs, stuff like that. But I, I just think, I mean, it's too ambitious and actually too naive and maybe even arrogant to, to think that our aid can help in terms of lifting an entire nation out of poverty. So which role will aid have going forward for Africa? Is it just in concrete small projects or... Or will will aid be helping on a larger level? You, you basically no, just. No, I don't think it should. I think aid can help where you know the conditions are right. And I think um, I think we, first of all, I think we should be more modest with what it can do. I don't think we should stop giving it giving it because I really think that aid does a lot of good. You know, in, for example, I've seen you know I've seen in Nepal. Uh, the goats that we give each other for Christmas. You know, Dan Shoshet has this give a goat thing. And I've seen them doing good, you know, in villages. So, you know, aid can, for example, aid can reach places where a normal growth process would not, because growth processes don't get inclusive by themselves. There will always be people who lose out of development pro processes. So even if a country develops, there will be very poor areas in a country, for example. So aid can help those that are lost in a development proce process, for instance. Um, so it's about identifying areas of need. That could be one. Or it's about identifying a sector where, there, where there's actually uh, good growth prospects. For example, in Uganda, which is a very poor country, um, Danita once supported um, um, the dairy sector, which is uh, it's a sector I have studied. So I know that Danita's help in that sector actually helped uh, promote it. And now, for, you know, for a population where after the, the civil war in the 1980s, 
they, they only had their milk powder from the World Food Program. But now they're self-sufficient with fresh milk in the entire country. So, you know, stuff like that. It's not like it does any, you know, it's like a big change. But still, it's, it's something that's good and ha has helped, you know, a lot of small, poor dairy farmers to increase their incomes. And now they're able to, you know, send their children to school or whatever. So it's on that scale that I think that aid can can do a difference. Do you want to ask the last question? Mm. I just I can't pronounce that properly. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> or what is it? Dan Church? <laughs> yeah, you can just say Dan Church. Can I say Dan Church? Yeah. Okay. Because what's the Danish name? I just can't really pronounce yeah. that well. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that you're also part of uh, Dan Church. Yeah. Which is the one of the largest Danish aid organizations? Mm -hmm. Am I correct? Um, and we've been discussing all of these nuances in the aid industry. So we wanted to know how much of this debate influences the work that you do with aid organizations such as that. Hmm, that's a good question. Well, obviously they invited me on the board because they wanted someone who knew more about, you know, who knew about development issues. Um, well, me personally, at the board meetings, I think. My input is not so much on, you know, the campaign strategies in Denmark or media strategies or something like that. It's more on the, you know, international work and development work that they do. We've, we've been discussing a lot what is a rights-based approach, for example, and what good does it do and does a right, is a rights-based approach necessarily better than other approaches to development or, you know, stuff like that, you know. So, yeah, I think, you know, the my area of research yeah, I hope that they can, you know, use it somehow. I don't know if that was enough of an answer. Maybe it wasn't. Oh, but no. I think, uh, I think that's great. That was Annemette Kjær. Thank you for letting us interview you. Uh, I think it was a very interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we've really gathered from tonight is that there might not be a blanket solution when it comes to helping the bottom billion or those impoverished people and nations in the world, we might not have a one-size-fits-all. It might have to be done maybe more on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, and uh, what I have learned, I think, is that expecting that aid will be able to solve the problems that face the bottom billion is uh, ignorant of all the different facets that there are. Mm -hmm. And we need to kind of focus on where it works really well, and that might be only small amounts here and there, but in the end, that might have to just be worth it. Yeah, because as Anamita elaborated, it actually also does work. Yeah. So, yeah. So not all hope is lost. Not all ho hope is lost, but <laughs> next time you donate to a thing, I hope that you are a little bit more informed of uh, yeah. how you are helping and yeah. if you where could your money is going. Yeah, if you could help in an even better way. For sure. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back in a couple weeks. Thank you.